The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. When I was growing up, there was a popular children's book called St. George and the Dragon. Perhaps some of you have heard of it or are now remembering it after many years. It's a retelling of a famous poem uh, called The Fairy Queen from the 1500s. And the story goes that a dragon is terrorizing a poor village community. And they're having to make sacrifices to the dragon in order to appease him. First, he accepts their sacrifices. He accepts the water, he accepts the food, but before long he moves on from those things and begins demanding people. It's a crisis. What is this poor, terrorized community going to do? Things become so dire, in fact, that the king promises his only daughter, the princess, to any man who can go out and slay the dragon. Well, sure enough, you know where this is going. A knight named George turns up on a horse, and he is the one who steps up to defeat the dragon, to save the people, and to win the girl. We humans have always loved stories like this, tales of chivalry and honor, sacrifice and rescue, romance and marriage. But all of those epic stories that that we love are, are actually just dim echoes dim echoes of the original tale of rescue and love. The only difference is that one, the greatest one, the original one, just happens to be true. If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me 
to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. During this Advent season, we'll, we'll be looking at four ancient promises that find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. As a friendly heads up, the sermon today is going to feel different than any sermon you're used to from me because we're not going to be camped out in just one passage. We'll start with one, but we're actually going to spend most of our time watching a theme unfold across the storyline of Scripture. It's a lot of terrain to cover. Full disclosure, a lot of terrain to cover, so you're basically going to need a Bible and a seatbelt. My intent uh, is not that you will remember every single detail or verse reference. It's to take you on a journey in which you experience something, in which you experience the cumulative sweep of that original epic story. We'll think about this story in five main movements or scenes. Five main movements or scenes, or we could call them acts. Number one, act one, promise given. Act two, promise threatened. Act three, promise previewed. Act four, promise born. Act five, promise fulfilled. Promise given, threatened, previewed, born, fulfilled. Act one, promise given. Roger just read for us the story of how sin slithered into God's good creation and corrupted it. And as you heard there at the end, the Lord responds to Adam and Eve's sin by pronouncing judgment, curses on them. But not first on them, if you noticed. He doesn't first pronounce a curse on the man or the woman, but rather on the serpent. Look there at Verse 14, Genesis 3, 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, that is deceived Adam and Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust. Eat dust all the days of your life. Now, he could have just moved on to the next curse at this point. On the curse on the woman and then the curse on the man, but he doesn't. He's got one more thing to say to the snake, whose identity scripture later reveals as the devil, Satan. Verse 15, God says, and I will put enmity, that is hostility, conflict between you, serpent, and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This has been called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel glimmer in all the Bible. It's a scene of darkness and judgment, and yet there's this little spark of light and hope. And the reason it conveys hope is not just because of the promise, but if you think about it, also because of the assumption. What do I mean by that? Well, what was the penalty for eating fruit from the forbidden tree? Genesis 2, in the day you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. 
Well, they did eat. They did disobey. They did rebel. And so they are right now standing guilty before God, expecting a swift and sudden death. But instead, they overhear words that indicate they're not going to immediately die. They're going to keep living long enough to be at odds with the snake. In fact, they're going to keep living long enough to see their own offspring. They're guilty. They're on death row, and yet they're going to have children. But their life and the life of those children and their children's children is going to be hard. God says there will be enduring conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And as the story unfolds, we, we see, we learn that the seed of the serpent is actually not a line of snakes. It's a line of humans who stand opposed to God. Eve's descendants belong to God. The snake's descendants oppose God. But then at the end of Genesis 3.15, God adds one more promise to the snake. He will crush your head. So in the first part of the verse, God is speaking collectively in the plural about seed of the serpent and seed of the woman, but then he switches to the masculine singular. He will crush your head. One future descendant of the woman, Satan will be your downfall. Yeah, you'll strike a blow. You'll, you'll get his heel, but there's a difference between heel wounds and head wounds. Your blow to him may be painful, but his blow to you will be fatal. Yeah, you might hurt him, but he's going to end you. And yet that fulfillment, that fulfillment, as we'll see, is still very, very far in the future. Promise given. Act two, promise threatened. Even if the last part of Genesis 3.15, which we just looked at, even if that awaits fulfillment in the far future, what about the first part, about that conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? I mean, how long do we have to wait to see that playing out? One chapter. Genesis 4, Cain murders his righteous brother Abel and is cursed for his sin. Same word from Genesis 3 for curse. Both sons physically came from Eve, but only one is presented as her spiritual offspring. This is a, a little picture in miniature of God's enemies mistreating God's people as the seed of the serpent slays the seed of the woman. And then by the time we reach Genesis 6, Humans have become so evil, so wicked, so rebellious against the Lord who made them that what does he do? He plunges them into the floodwaters of his judgment. It looks like at this point, six chapters in, it's over. So much for Genesis 3.15. What a sweet little promise about a coming Savior who will crush Satan. At this point, it looks like Satan has actually won. But not so fast. In mercy, as you keep reading, you, you see that God chooses and spares Noah's family, that they, that they might kick off his redemption project 
all over again. And yet, even though he spares Noah's family, even though it's, it's, a, it's a reboot, even though he's kind of Adam 2.0, it's clear that things are still bleak because the flood managed to destroy the world, but it couldn't wash away sin. Man is still trying to make a name for himself rather than for God. God has always, though, had his remnant. That's one of the the themes that shows up here in the early chapters of the Bible and continues to the very end. Even amid all the wickedness, not only among the nations of the world, but also among his own people, God has always preserved a remnant, those who will not bow the knee to other gods. He's not about to give up on that word of hope from Eden. In Genesis 12, he he zeroes in on one particular unsuspecting family. And he says to Abraham, essentially, hope, that that original hope from Genesis 3, hope is going to run through you, Abraham, your family, and the nation I intend to build. And how does God make this promise to Abraham? By invoking and reiterating language from Genesis 315. Your seed, your descendants will be innumerable. Pretty awesome, right? Pretty awesome that that, that God has shown up to this unsuspecting man and family and said, hey, I'm going to multiply your offspring beyond your imagination, except decade after decade after decade pass And Abraham and Sarah can't even manage to produce one kid. How in the world is Genesis 3.15 going to come true if the promise dies here in the barrenness of Sarah's womb? But even despite the old couple's laughing, scheming unbelief, the Lord eventually does make good on his word and gives them a son to carry on the promise. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, God says, as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So here is the seed of the woman. Here is the promised child who's going to carry on the hope, carry on the line. And after decades of waiting for him, when this single son of the promise is a teenager, God says, Hey, Abraham, put him on the altar and bring a knife. Trust me. And sure enough, Abraham believes and God provides a substitute, a ram to die in Isaac's place. And then he says, Genesis twenty-two seventeen, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring, so this is seed language, that's coming from Genesis 3.15 and being carried forward through the pages of the Bible, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So the promise lives to see another day, but it's not long, once again, before it's threatened again. And yet, at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, we see that famine in Egypt and even slavery under a wicked Pharaoh, under a seed of the serpent, are no match for a promise from God. 
Promise given, promise threatened. Act three, promise previewed. The next installment in this pattern I want to show you is Numbers 24. Go ahead and turn there with me. Fourth book of the Bible. Numbers 24. The king of Israel's, en- uh, Israel's enemy Moab, seed of the serpent, hires a guy named Balaam to curse uh, Israel, to pronounce curses on God's people, seed of the woman. So seed of the serpent is meant to curse the seed of the woman, but it doesn't go the way the king of Moab planned. Listen to Balaam's vision in verse 17. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. In other words, I'm talking about a future male descendant. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter, that is a king's rod, shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Crush the head of God's enemy? Where where have we heard that language before? Genesis 3.15. I mean, do, do you see how the promise is getting carried forward? That original promise in Genesis 3.15 was for all humanity because all of us are under the curse of sin and need a champion to come and deliver us and die for us and rescue us in our place and crush the serpent's head. But even though it's a humanity-wide promise, it's being narrowed and carried forward through one particular nation. Israel. And this pagan prophet Balaam is speaking better than he knows when he looks into the future and says, there will come a king. Not today, not tomorrow, but there is coming a king from Israel who will crush the heads of God's enemies. And then with numbers, this Numbers 24 promise in view, we can fast forward to the time of the monarchy and noticed, for example, in 1 Samuel 11, and there's an Ammonite king opposing God's people whose name is Nahash. Do you know what Nahash is the Hebrew word for? Serpent. And just six chapters later, in 1 Samuel 17, when, God's, when Israel's greatest Old Testament king is still a shepherd boy with a sling, representing God's people before their towering foe. How is that Philistine described? How is the giant described? Some English translations just say he's wearing a coat of mail, but the NIV gets it exactly right. Literally in Hebrew, he's clothed in scales. He's being described as a dragon-like serpent. It's the same word used elsewhere for Pharaoh. And how is, he, how is this scaly opponent of God's people killed? with a fatal blow to the head, a stone that crushes his skull. None of this should surprise us. As theologian Jim Hamilton puts it very simply, bad guys get broken heads in the Bible. (laughs) And sure enough, when we get to the book of Psalms, the echoes of Genesis 3.15 are everywhere if we have ears to hear, if we're listening. Psalm 18 King David, I crushed my enemies so they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. 
Psalm 72, speaking of the Messiah, may he crush the oppressor. That echoes Genesis 3.15. And then we read, may the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Genesis 3.14. Psalm 74, God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan, a dragon-like beast whom Isaiah describes as a serpent. Even Psalm 110, which is quoted in Mark 12, you may recall, In reference to the Messiah, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, the Messiah will be the seed of the woman who will vanquish under his feet the seed of the serpent. This imagery even continues in the prophets. Jeremiah 23, for example, speaks of a storm of God's wrath swirling down on the heads of the wicked. And Jeremiah 23 is not just any random chapter. It's a chapter laden with messianic hope and promise. I could go on and on, but this sermon will be a success if it simply from now on gives you ears for these echoes when you read the Bible yourself. But do all the echoes, all the hope, does it all just kind of sputter out as the Old Testament draws to a close? And then 400 years of heaven's silence. That's an incredibly long time. Our country is what, 250 years old? 400 years of Israel hearing nothing from heaven. Surely that's a signal that the promise is finally extinguished. Again, not so fast. Promise given, promise threatened, promise previewed. Act four, promise born. Turn with me to Galatians chapter four. Galatians chapter 4. This was our scripture reading earlier in the service. Now you're going to find out why. Look at verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. We often don't think of Galatians when we think of Christmas. We think of Matthew and Luke. But if you want the Christmas story in two verses, here you go. Galatians 4. Four and five. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, why did I have you turn here? There's any number of nice Christmas texts, things about the incarnation. Why are we looking, of all places, at Galatians 4? What, was it just to show you the sweeping purpose of the incarnation and shrink wrap? <laughs> the lawmaker became the lawkeeper and then died in the place of lawbreakers? Amen. But that's not why we're here. I want you to see a little phrase Paul goes out of his way to add God sent his son, born of a woman. Now, why say that? Every
every body is born of a woman. Everyone has a mom. That, that, that's a needless thing to say unless he's invoking an ancient promise. He's saying that long-awaited seed of the woman, he's here. And, and this raises a fascinating question some of you may have thought about before with Genesis 3.15. Why didn't God speak to the serpent make a promise to the serpent about a future descendant of the man. I mean, after all, that was how ancient genealogies worked. A family's name and inheritance and legacy was perpetuated through the fathers, not the mothers. Well, I think this is the reason. In order to be a human, Jesus had to be born of a human mother. But in order to be God, he had to be conceived not by a human father, but by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had a biological mother, but not a biological father, which is why I think he's described, contrary to all expectation, all ancient convention, as the seed of the woman. Hence, Paul adding the phrase, God sent his son. And here's the thing I want you to know about this son, Paul says. He was born of a woman. And after he's born to Mary, the threats to the promise rise up again and, and they only intensify. King Herod catches wind that there's a newborn king and he does what? He vows to slaughter every baby boy in Bethlehem under the age of two. And it's only by escaping to Egypt that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus survive. A few decades later, when he's baptized, do you remember what happens immediately after Jesus receives heaven's affirmation? The spirit drives him into the desert for a showdown with Satan. Why is that significant? Well, in Eden's temptation, Satan showed up and what happened? The first Adam fell. In this temptation, Satan shows up and the last Adam crushes his head. Not completely but he gives a preview of what is to come. Or remember when the Pharisees lodge that bizarre accusation, we saw this way back in Mark 3. The, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they're really desperate at this point. Jesus is casting out demons, performing miracles, the crowds are flocking to him. And so the Pharisees come up and they're like, ah, here's what it is. You're demon possessed. You, you are empowered by Satan. And remember Jesus' response, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself, himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In other words, look, if I'm on team Satan, don't you think I would be putting demons into people rather than casting them out? And then he deploys this metaphor, Mark 3.27. No one can enter a strong man's house. Remember that? No one can enter a strong man's house without first binding him up. Then, and only then, can he plunder the strong man's house. Jesus is like, Pharisees, I'll actually raise you one. Not only am I not in league with Satan, I'm actually here to chain him and liberate his captives. 
You want to talk about kingdoms not standing, Pharisees? His is about to fall because the snake crusher is here. Promise given, promise threatened, promise previewed, promise born. And fifth and finally, Act 5, promise fulfilled. The enduring conflict between the collective seed of the woman and seed of the serpent continues, we see, in the ministry of Jesus. What what does he call the Pharisees at one point in Matthew 23? You snakes. He didn't just choose a random animal. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape from being condemned to hell? Or even more pointedly, John 8, you belong to your father, the devil. Your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. In other words, you resemble your dad. So even Jewish leaders, we see, Jewish leaders can be seed of the serpent if they're arrayed against the promised seed of the woman. But the seed of the serpent are those who oppose not just Jesus, but also his people. 1 John chapter 3, the, the apostle writes, this is 1 John 3, 8 and following, the one who does what's sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And then 1 John 3.10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who doesn't do what's right is not God's child, nor is anyone who doesn't love their brother and sister. By the way, it's worth taking just a brief moment to point something out uh, that, that might help you understand something about the way we do church, even from uh, a passage like, or passages like this. It's worth pointing out that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, the people of Israel were a mixed people, spiritually, not ethnically, spiritually mixed people, seed of the serpent and seed of the woman. But Jesus is on the scene has been for 2,000 years, to form a new people, a new community that is not spiritually mixed, but is pure. Now, this doesn't mean that ordinary, fallible local churches like ours always get it right. We, we don't, but it is meant that we're, it does mean that we're only meant to welcome into membership those who are seed of the woman because they're turning from their sin, repenting of their sin, and putting their trust in the skull crusher. This is why church membership and discipline are actually two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. In welcoming someone into membership, a congregation is, is corporately, together, affirming the credibility of that person's conversion. They're saying, we, we think you understand the gospel. We, we think you're repenting of your sin. We think you're living like a Christian. Church discipline, though, can culminate in a church remove, uh, removing someone from membership because they're no longer repenting. In other words, their life has started to look like the seed of the serpent. 
So if membership is the congregation's affirmation of the credibility of someone's conversion, discipline is just the congregation removing that affirmation. It's just correcting the record. No, we can't read people's hearts. We can't read wayward, unrepentant members' hearts. We don't have God's eye view on the end of everyone's story. We're not saying in exercising that final stage of church discipline, we know you're going to hell. We're simply saying we no longer have confidence you're going to heaven. And speaking of heaven and hell, friend, if you are not following Jesus, well, first of all, we are thrilled you're here. It might be startling Uh, even offensive to turn up to church on a perfectly good Advent Sunday and be told that you are a child of the devil? Not Hitler, you. An honest employee, a generous neighbor, a decent law-abiding citizen. Seed of the serpent? Really? But don't mishear us. The serpent would actually love for you to mishear us. We're not saying we're better than you. We too were once children of wrath. Every Christian in this room was also once trapped in self-absorption and self-obsession. We too were lost in darkness until God the Holy Spirit swooped in and turned on the lights. He exposed our sin and our need for rescue and the fact that Jesus stepped into the world he made and lived and died and rose in the place of sinners, in the place of everyone who will simply turn away from their sin, from their selfishness, and put their trust in him. If you're not safe in Christ, here's the very sober thing, but if we're unwilling to level with you and be honest with you and say things like this to you, then we as a church of Jesus Christ are wasting your time. If you are not resting in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're not safe in Christ this morning by faith, then your greatest adversary is actually not the devil. It's God. Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But the reverse is also true. If God is against you, who can be for you? He is holy and just. You're not. Who in the world is going to pay the price for your sins? It's either you or the promised one. And this morning, you can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light simply by humbling yourself and emptying your hands of any righteousness you have, any receipts that you think you can bring to the presence of God to show him that you've been a decent person. None of it suffices in his holy presence. But you can be made right with him and adopted into his family this morning through faith. See, the ultimate difference between followers of self and followers of Jesus, and that is the distinction. Followers of self and followers of Jesus, seed of the serpent and seed of the woman, is not the Christian's virtue. It's just simply our union with the perfect seed of the woman. See what I'm saying? We are the seed of the woman because we are united to the ultimate seed of the woman. Jesus Christ.
And when does that last part of Genesis 3.15, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. When does that come about? We've seen it previewed, but when does that get fulfilled? The answer is on the cross. This is why as Jesus approached death, he had something to say in regard to Satan. With the shadow of the cross looming, he said, now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And cast out he was, which leads Paul to exclaim, Colossians chapter 2, God forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed disarmed the powers and authorities. That is the satanic forces in the spiritual realm. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He totally canceled your debt, which means Satan no longer has any grounds to accuse. Oh yes, he's powerful. Satan is powerful. The Bible elsewhere describes him not just as a serpent or a dragon, but as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He can wreak havoc in your life. He hasn't been destroyed, but he has been defanged. Beloved, do you see the implication for you today, for you this coming week? As John Piper explains, the devil can tempt you, he can deceive you, he can attack you, but the one thing he can no longer do is condemn you. Because, see, he had one weapon. His only truly effective weapon was the ability to charge you with unforgiven sin. And at the cross, that weapon was stripped from his grasp as Jesus swooped in and snapped off his fangs. Jesus snapped off his fangs, which means that now all the devil can do is just gum you. That's how secure you are. See, from the beginning, humanity was charged to exercise dominion, to rule and subdue the earth for God. Psalm 8 flashes back. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. That is the original purpose, job description for human beings, to rule the world on behalf of God. But Adam failed to keep under his feet what he needed to. Adam failed to stomp and kill the snake. He let that slithering intruder come in and spoil God's garden. Noah also failed. Abraham failed. Isaac failed. Jacob failed. Moses failed. David failed. Israel failed. Everyone in this room has failed. But in the middle of history, there was one who succeeded. No wonder Ephesians 1 declares that God has placed all things under his feet. And the day is coming when we together will share in his victory. We won't just merely watch as bystanders, as those with front row courtside seats. We will share in this great victory. Romans 16, 20, our call to worship at the beginning of the service, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
That's the only time, by the way, Satan is mentioned in the whole book of Romans. 16 glorious chapters, one little mention at the end. Temptation will always beset you. Accusation won't always hound you. False teachers won't always deceive you. Paul is wanting to tell, before he signs off to the church in Rome, he's wanting to say, all of these things will continue to plague you and harass you. But the source of all that chaos is going to be trampled to death. He will be destroyed forever. There is an expiration date to your pain and your fear and your suffering because the snake crusher has come and the snake crusher is coming again. Turn finally to Revelation chapter 12. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12. Where the apostle John gives us a decade-spanning story in a little snapshot, a little flashback. It's laden with symbolism. We don't have the, the time to unpack everything, but see if you can pick up on what he's saying through this symbolic imagery. Revelation 12, look there at verse 4. The dragon, the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. What do you think that might be referring to? The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Revelation 12, 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child. And then he quotes Psalm 2, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. In other words, from the incarnation to the ascension, God protected his promised one. Now, verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, and then we're given his identity. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth, and his angels, that is demons, with him. And then look down at verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman who in this passage is symbolic, not only for Eve and for Mary, but also for the church. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. The war of the people of God against the seed of the serpent will not be short, it will not be easy, it will not be painless, but it will be won. This whole sweeping saga we've observed from the third chapter in your Bible all the way to the very last book should give you immense confidence, friend, immense confidence that though God's purposes take a long time to unfold, the Bible's a longer book than we may prefer in this regard. God is not in a hurry. His purposes take a long time to unfold, but unfold they do. Nothing can thwart his plans. Oh, it looked like the promise would die out in the flood. But it didn't. It looked like it would die out when Abraham held the knife over Isaac. But it didn't. It looked like it would die out in the groans of slavery in Egypt. But it didn't. 
It looked like it would die out in the complaints in the wilderness, but it didn't. It looked like it would die out in a Bethlehem famine, as we thought about last Advent. But God worked through Boaz and Ruth, and so it didn't. It looked like it would die out when a wicked Persian named Haman tried to exterminate all Jews, but God worked through Mordecai and Esther, and so it didn't. It looked like it was, would die out when Herod tried to slaughter all the children, all the baby boys, but it didn't. It looked like it would die out when Judas betrayed the Son of God, but it didn't. It looked like it would die out when the Romans killed the Son of God, but it didn't. And if God has so intricately governed the whole history of the world to bring about his grand purposes, do you really think he's going to fail you this coming week? As we bring things to a close, it's been said that Genesis 3.15 is so pivotal to the Bible's storyline that it's almost like all of Scripture is just one long footnote to that ancient, original promise. In his interesting book, The Serpent and the, Serp- the, the, Serpent, and the Serpent Slayer, Andy Nacelli traces this theme through Scripture and demonstrates from the Bible that biblical serpents are always snakes or dragons, snakes or dragons, with Satan being the arch dragon and believers the bride of Christ. Reflecting on the whole Bible, he writes, snakes, deva- de- snakes deceive, dragons devour. Snakes tempt, dragons attack. Snakes backstab, dragons assault. Snakes lie, dragons kill. The hero's mission, kill the dragon, get the girl. That's what King Jesus came to do, to rescue us, his bride, the church, from the ravenous, dragon-like effects of the fall, the dragon of condemnation and death, and he came to do it by destroying the devil's works. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray.